This past Friday was the Feast of the Sacred Heart. Now, I didn't really grow up celebrating that feast. I think it's because it's always on a Friday and we never went to Mass that day. I don't even know if in Panama it's a holy day of obligation. I know that in Canada it's not. All that to say that I didn't really grow up with a big devotion to the Sacred Heart. Although I was familiar with the image of Jesus looking straight at you, pointing at his heart, which can be visible on the outside of his body, I never really gave it much thought. Until I became a dad. It seems silly, but that's when I realized that the Sacred Heart of Jesus is all about love. We don't think that the Father is the heart of the family, not to be sexist, but we are more likely to think that the Mother is the heart of the family. But in the case of God, God is not just the head but also the heart. Christ is the head, but he also feels and loves. Christ is also the heart. And everyone longs for the love of a father. Can anyone speak about their dad, especially after they're gone, even if the relationship was not great, even if our dad was absent, without getting emotional? Everyone longs for the love of a father. It's no coincidence that God is father. God is father, and we all long for the love of the father. And that's what the Feast of the Sacred Heart is all about. Love. It's not Father's Day quite yet, but today I pray for fathers. I pray for your heart of a father. I pray that you continually strive to love your children as the father loves his children. With a love that pours itself out completely, totally, and eternally. Unselfishly, unconditionally, and without restraint. I'm Deacon Pedro, and this is the Salt and Light Hour. Hello and welcome to the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. Let's start the program with announcing our winner this week, Anthony Pichora. Anthony Pichora, I hope I'm not mispronouncing your name. It might be Picora. Anthony Picora, you've won a copy of Noel Garcia's Set the World on Fire that we featured last week. Thank you all for listening to our program and for signing up for our weekly draw. Anthony, if you haven't yet done so, please contact us so we can get you Noel Garcia's Set the World on Fire. Today, we continue with our usual show format. Stefan is back with our news. And of course, Andrew will be here with a Saint of the Week. And afterwards, Jillian Cantor will tell us what she learned from her kids this month. In our second half hour, we're happy to have Deacon James Keating back on the program. Deacon James has just written a new book. So this goes out to all the deacons out there. You don't want to miss our conversation. And if you're interested in the diaconate or curious about what that is, stay and listen. That's in about half an hour. And after that, we'll be meeting a new artist of the week, Lorraine Hess. She's a singer-songwriter based in New Orleans. Lorraine has a new album, her fourth, As I Pray. So we'll be learning about her, her ministry, and her music in our second half hour. Let's begin now with a song from Lorraine Hess's new album, Special for the Feast of the Sacred Heart. Here's Sacred Heart Prayer from Lorraine Hess's new album, As I Pray.
was Lorraine Hess with Sacred Heart Prayer from her new album, As I Pray. And we're going to be speaking with Lorraine in our second half hour. And in about 10 minutes, what I learned from my kids. But first, Stefan is here with our news. Stefan, welcome back. Thank you. So after six years of this inquiry, Truth and Reconciliation, we have... We have a report that's come out, actually seven years. So what is the Truth and Reconciliation? Truth and Reconciliation Commission was set up to really investigate and find out um, just what happened in Canada's residential school system. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was a system where um, Aboriginal children were taken from their families and put in uh, these schools to supposedly give them a better chance uh, in Canadian society. We've since learned through the commission that there were all kinds of horrible things that happened in those in the, those schools, uh, and this report really broke down just what happened and gave 94 points out right. uh, to sort of move forward and try and find some, hopefully, some closure to this story. Right, and some of the schools were run by the Catholic Church. Yes, they were. Um, and of the 94 points brought forward by the commission, mm-hmm. one of the points uh, actually calls on Pope Francis to come to Canada and personally apologize uh, for the mistakes of the church in the residential uh, school situation. Okay. So uh, Archbishop Gerard Petipa, who is uh, sort of head of the corporation, still still exists, that manage the schools, uh-huh. uh, he came out and said that, uh, well, you know, they would bishops would accept the report, they'd look it over at their plenary and take it very seriously. Mm-hmm. However... Uh, setting a hard deadline of next year, uh, June of next year, and saying that the Pope needs to come to Canada and do it, uh, he immediately suggested could be problematic. Yes, yes, interesting. Well, it would be nice if the Pope came next year. We'd love to have a Pope in Canada. Yes, we would love to have the Pope in Canada. Um, in the Vatican, they're also dealing with protection of minor issues. So what happened? They are, yes. Uh, There is a committee uh, for the protection of minors uh, that meets regularly at the Vatican. It includes abuse survivors and others Mm -hmm. within the church. One of those committee members uh, went on Australian 60 Minutes and uh, made personal uh, 
comments and attacks towards uh, Cardinal George Pell, who is the prefect of the, uh, for the economy for the Vatican, the yes. Vatican's uh, finance minister. Uh, he was previously uh, Archbishop of Sydney and mm-hmm. held other postings in Australia. Um, Peter Saunders, this committee member, uh, called the cardinal uh, sociopathic and untenable in issues of, uh, of sexual abuse, uh, suggesting past mm-hmm. misdealings. Uh, the cardinal and both, well, first of all, the Vatican and the cardinal uh, both came out very strongly and disavowed these comments, yet. said they are not related to the commission. The commission, especially mm-hmm. Mr. Sanders, doesn't have the competency to make such comments. Uh, so Cardinal Pell has already planned to speak to a royal commission in Australia later this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's going to be uh, helping to sort of address the things that happened in Australia, uh, but the Vatican standing very strongly behind Cardinal Pell. Yeah, unfortunately, this is a story that I think we, we keep hearing, hearing and hearing, and we will continue hearing about it. Um, the Holy Father is on an apostolic journey. Yes, today. As we speak. Yes, he is. He is in Sarajevo, yep. uh, the capital of Bosnia-Herzegovina. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the, uh, was the former Yugoslavia. Yes. Uh, the Pope is going just for today for 11 hours. Uh, one, day, uh, one day trip. He, uh, he said the message of his trip, the motto, I guess, is peace be with you. Mm-hmm. As I'm sure many uh, listeners will remember, there was a horrible, horrible war that took place uh, in Bosnia in the 90s, uh, all kinds of horrible things and tragic, tragic things happened in that war. So you have a society that's really fractured along ethnic lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have your uh, Serb Orthodox, your Bosniak Muslims, and your Catholic Croats. So the Pope is really trying today to sort of bring unity to these three groups that make up uh, modern Bosnia-Herzegovina. And lastly, then, if someone wanted to open a church in, let's say, the United Arab Emirates, <laughs> what what would they do? <laughs> they would call the number two cardinal or the number one cardinal at the Vatican. <laughs> uh, cardinal Perelin, next Thursday, uh, who is the Secretary of State, is going to travel to the United Arab Emirates to open a parish church. Wow. Or it had to be there for the inauguration. Uh, yes. There are a few churches in the United Arab Emirates, which is, of course, a Muslim country. Yes. Uh, but the community is uh, is growing because of the number of immigrants there. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are estimates that say there are hundreds of thousands, if not upwards of a million Catholics in the United Arab Emirates. So this church in the capital of Abu Dhabi, which will be called St. Peter, St. Paul's, excuse me, uh, will be the second church in the capital. And uh, there's going to be a uh, governmental minister who actually inaugurates the church. And then the next day, the church will be blessed where they're expecting approximately 5,000 people from okay, Interesting. Okay, very good. They're opening churches in UAE. Very good. Thank you very much, Stefan Slovak. You can watch Stefan and get the latest updates on Perspectives Mondays through Thursdays on Salt and Light TV. You can watch it online at saltandlighttv.org and also on Roku. Hi, I'm Adam. Hi, I'm Lori. And we're Out, Out of, of Darkness. Darkness. And you're listening to the Salt and Light Hour with Deacon Pedro. Salt and Light is now on Roku in Canada, the U.S., the U.K., and Ireland. Find out more at saltandlighttv.org slash Roku. And now it's time for Saint of the Week with Andrew Santos. Thank you, Pedro. Welcome back. Thank you for having me, as always. As always. So, we have some new saints. Yeah, here's the thing. Um, in this last month of kind of uh, Saint of the Week of, yep. our, of our radio hour together, I thought I would, you know, maybe take the opportunity to kind of look at some saints who um, lived out the consecrated life. Uh, okay. This year, as you know, is a year, year dedicated to um, the consecrated life by Pope Francis. Yeah. And there are many, many beautiful saints 
uh, beautiful people in the church who've lived out that call faithfully and joyfully. So I thought I would take maybe these uh, these next two weeks or so and kind of look at a few saints um, who really lived out this calling of the church. Okay, excellent. So who's our first consecrated? Let's saint? look at Saint Teresa of Avila. Oh, I like her. Oh, she's great. We know that she was born before the Protestant Reformation, um, 16th century, going back then. Uh, and she died almost 20 years after the closing of the Council of Trent. Okay. Um, the gift of God really to Teresa, um, in and through which she became holy and left her mark on the Church, um, as well as the world, the greater world, is kind of in three parts. Okay? Let's, uh, let's talk about how she was a woman. Not only was she a woman, but number two, she was a contemplative. And besides being a woman and besides being contemplative, Deacon Pedro, she was an active reformer. Uh-huh. So as a woman, first off, Teresa really stood on her own two feet, even in, I guess you would say, the man's world of mm-hmm. her time. She was her own woman. She entered the Carmelites despite really strong opposition from her father, which yeah. was interesting to read. Um, she's a person um, wrapped not so much in silence, but as in mystery. There mm-hmm. is so many... Um, really kind of descriptions to describe Teresa of Avila. She was affectionate. She was courageous. She had a joy and enthusiasm. Um, you know, even looking into her her, her story, um, like Jesus, uh, some would say that she was a mystery of paradoxes. Mm-hmm. She was wise, practical, intelligent, a holy woman, but also a womanly woman. Yeah. Teresa was a woman for God. Uh, she spent a lot of time as a woman praying. Um, she had a lot of discipline in her life, um, a lot of compassion. Um, her ongoing conversion uh, was a lifelong struggle involving like ongoing purification and suffering. By people around her at that time in her life, she was misunderstood. She was misjudged. Uh, and she was opposed in her efforts at reform. So, And in the midst of everything going on in her life, she really, really clung to God. Uh, she clung to God in the life that she lived out, Deacon Pedro, and uh-huh. in her prayer. So her writings on prayer and contemplation are really drawn from her experience. Um, and her writings are very, very practical, very easy to understand. They're very graceful, and they're very powerful. Okay? Um, her writings, uh, especially the writings um, entitled The Way of Perfection and The Interior Castle. Yep. I don't know if you've heard of that before. Yes. But they've really, really helped generations of believers throughout the centuries. Um, in her life, in her efforts to reform, in all the people that she touched, uh, really she was a woman for others. You notice that in her writings. Mm-hmm. She was a woman who inspired, not just then, but today, and she gave life to everybody around her. It was in 1970. Let's fast track to 1970. Um, the church gave her the title she had long held, um, really in the mind of many, many believers, and that was Doctor, Doctor of the Church. Of the church yeah. So she and St. Catherine of Siena were, I, I did not know this, I know that uh, St. Teresa of Avila was one of the first doctors, but um, I had totally forgotten about Catherine of Siena. Yes. Both of them together were the first women honored with that title, mm-hmm. and that was back uh, in 1970. So um, her feast day in the church is October the 15th. I know it's not now, yep. but I thought, you know, St. Teresa of Avila is a great, great saint to reflect upon as we continue to reflect and give thanks for um, consecrated life in our church today. Absolutely. St. Teresa of Avila. Pray for us. Pray for us. Feast day, October 15th. Thank you, Andrew. Andrew Santos, our saint expert, is uh, also the youth director at St. Justin Martyr Parish in Markham, Ontario. 
Hi, my name is Noel Garcia, and you're listening to the Salt and Light Hour with Deacon Pedro. I'm Deacon Pedro. You can find Salt and Light Radio on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash slradio1. And you can also find me on Facebook, uh, Deacon Pedro. And you can follow me on Twitter, at Deacon Pedro GM. And now it's time for... What I Learned from My Kids with Jillian Cantor. Jillian, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much. This could be the noisy hour edition. The noisy, Um, well, it is a parenting segment, so I I suppose it's okay to have children in the background. Usually I sneak them off to nap time, but today they're not. That's what I learned from my kids this month. They put them to nap. nap. <laughs> put them to nap before <laughs> before yeah. you make an important phone call. Yeah, so you try that. What did you learn this month? Um, today, uh, well, not today. This month, <laughs> I have learned I am not doing such a bad job after all. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I could have told you that. <laughs> I think I speak for all moms when I say we've all had those moments where we feel like I am totally ruining my children. And, uh, and and that I'm doing a terrible, terrible job. And I had that conversation with my husband, um, well, almost daily, but <laughs> in a very big way a few weeks ago. And I just said to him, like, how would you feel if every day you went to the office and said to yourself, I am doing a bad job. I am horrible at my job. Would you want to stay at that job? Like, it's it's just overwhelming some days when you just really look at your kids and you think, I don't, I, I feel like every decision I make is failing you, and and I'm just exhausted, and it's not just a physical exhaustion, but a mental and emotional and even spiritual exhaustion because because you just feel like everything that you're doing is wrong, and it just wears on you after a while. Um, and I think I I hope <laughs> I think all moms go through this, and and maybe the source of a lot of this is the dear old internet. For the love of all that is good, moms should never read the internet because there are so many different opinions. There are so many people out there who are just who blast you for anything and everything that you do. It's kind of that you're darned if you do and you're darned if you don't kind of mentality. It's like everyone will disagree with you on every single point, basically. And so you just kind of need to steer clear of those opinions, especially um, as Catholic parents, when you're trying to do things perhaps a bit more counterculturally, you're not making the same decisions that a lot of moms and dads are making. Um, not that you're trying to coddle or protect your children, but you're just trying to teach them differently and serve them differently. And so it, it, various sources, whether it's the Internet or someone at school or other parents, parents of your kids' friends, um, you just it's not necessarily things that they say, but just maybe a judgment even that you feel or... Um, a message that comes across that says you might not be doing it the way you should be doing it. And after a while, like I said before, it just wears on you. Like you just, I just, I don't know what the decisions to make, what the right decisions to make are anymore. Um, so recently, as you can tell, yes. <laughs> I've been in that bit of a funk, just okay. kind of second guessing what I'm doing and how I'm doing this and how I'm raising my kids. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with just not giving myself enough. Space for for myself, and I don't mean necessarily having that me time or going away on a vacation. Yes. I just mean even taking a minute to sit down by myself and take a breath, or say a prayer, or just um, do something that's going to energize me and help me to focus more properly on 
on this family and what we're trying to create and, and the people we're trying to, to raise. Um, so the other day, my husband said, you just need to go out of this house for a little <laughs> bit. So um, my, my oldest son, Joseph, is uh, six years old, and he's just gotten rid of his training wheels. Um, and he likes to ride his bike fast. Unfortunately, when we all go on a family bike ride, he can't go very fast because he has to stick with the rest of us who may not be as quick. Yes. Um, and so this time I said, Joe, I'm going to go put my running shoes on, and I'll go running, and you go biking, and you can go as fast as you want, and I'll keep up with you. And so he beamed, and he got his stuff on really fast, and out we went right away. And so it didn't take very long, a couple blocks into it, when I realized, one, this kid is showing no mercy. I don't know if I can keep up with him. He is running, or he is biking really fast. Therefore, I'm running really fast. And two, this feels good. This feels good to just have a space to clear my head and to just breathe. And as I was thinking that, I heard from beside me a very happy sigh and Joseph said, Mommy, you're the best. And in that moment, I realized therein lies the truth. Mm-hmm. Mommy, you're the best. And nobody's telling me, Jillian, you're the best. You're the best mother out there. But I have a little boy, my little boy, who's looking at me and saying, Mommy, my mommy, you are the best. You are the best for me, and you know what you're doing for me and how to raise me and how to love me. And in that moment, I just... I got a burst of energy, and I could just run faster and further because I really felt it then. I felt like, yes, I do know what I'm doing. I'm not doing such a bad job after all. I am serving this boy as he needs to be served. And I recognized, even if in that moment it was just that little knee, like he just wants to ride his bike fast, and I can help him do that. But I, I, there, I mean, there are other things that, you know, I am recognizing the needs and the desires of my children, and I'm helping to... To raise them as the people that God wants them to be. So I am not doing such a terrible job after all. Even in if it's just that one day where I feel feel it, um, I have to keep that in the back of my head. I'm not doing such a terrible job. <laughs> yes, yes, and it is nice when our kids actually remind us that we're not. <laughs> and and just remember, you're the one. You're the mother with the radio column about parenting. So <laughs> y- y- we're we're lucky. So We're all looking to you for advice. So maybe we need our listeners to write in and tell Jillian that she's doing a great job. <laughs> and and the advice is go for a run more often. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay, good, Jillian. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Yes, Jillian, who's feeling better today. Jillian Cantor is the producer of the Salt and Light TV program Mothering Full of Grace. And she's the wife of David and the mother of fast cycler Joseph. Henry, Annie, and little Clara. Hi, this is Hal from a UK band called Oopfuse, and you're listening to Salt and Light Hour with Deacon Pedro. As the church celebrates the feast of the body and blood of Christ, Corpus Christi, I would like to share with you the story of a group of martyrs in the early church who gave us some profound insights into the gift of the Eucharist and the importance of our Sunday gatherings. These heroic witnesses, known as the Martyrs of Abitene, martyred in 303, were Christians who lived in Abitene, a city of the Roman province called Africa Proconsularis, today's Tunis. They were victims of Emperor Diocletian's persecution, initiated after years of relative calm. The Emperor Diocletian ordered that the sacred texts and holy testaments of the Lord and the divine scriptures be found so that they could be burnt. The Lord's basilicas were to be pulled down and the celebration of sacred rites and holy reunions of the Lord 
were to be prohibited. Disobeying the emperor's orders, a group of 49 Christians of Abitene, among them a senator, Dativus, the priest Saturninus, the virgin Victoria, and the reader Emeritus, gathered weekly in one of their homes to celebrate Sunday Mass. Taken by surprise during one of the meetings in Ottavio Felice's home, they were arrested and taken to Carthage to proconsul Anulinus to be interrogated. When the proconsul asked them if they kept the scriptures in their homes, the martyrs answered courageously that they kept them in their hearts, revealing that they did not wish to separate faith from life. During their torture and torment, the martyrs uttered exclamations such as, I implore you, Christ, hear me. I thank you, O God. I implore you, Christ, have mercy. Along with their prayers, they offered their lives and asked that their executioners be forgiven. Among the testimonies is that of Emeritus, who affirmed fearlessly that he received Christians for the celebration. The proconsul asked him, Why have you received Christians in your home, transgressing the imperial dispositions? Emeritus answered, Sine Dominico non possumus. We cannot live without Sunday. The term Dominicum has a triple meaning. It indicates the Lord's Day, but also refers to what constitutes its content, his resurrection and presence in the Eucharistic event. The motive of martyrdom must not be sought in the sole observance of a precept, as in that period the Church had not yet established in a formal way the Sunday precept. Deep down was the conviction that Sunday Mass is a constitutive element of one's Christian identity, and there is no Christian life without Sunday and without the Eucharist. In the commentary that the writer of the Acts of the Martyrs wrote, based on the question posed by the proconsul to Martyr Felice, I am not asking you if you are a Christian, but if you have taken part in the assembly, or if you have a book of the scriptures, the commentator wrote these provocative words. O foolish and ridiculous question of the judge! As if a Christian could be without the Sunday Eucharist, or the Sunday Eucharist could be celebrated without there being a Christian. Don't you know, Satan, that it is the Sunday Eucharist which makes the Christian, and the Christian that makes the Sunday Eucharist, so that one cannot subsist without the other, and vice versa? The commentary on the martyrs concluded with these sobering thoughts. When you hear someone say Christian, Know that there is an assembly that celebrates the Lord. And when you hear someone say assembly, know that a Christian is there. The message left by the martyrs of Abitene, we cannot live without Sunday, is highly appropriate for us on the day when we celebrate our deepest identity as Christians, members of the body of Christ who have been given an extraordinary gift in the bread and wine of the Eucharist. Strengthened and encouraged by the example of the martyrs of Abitene, let us pray that we become what we receive in this great sacrament and on this great feast. We cannot live without Sunday. Father Thomas Rosica is a Brazilian priest. He is the CEO of Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation and the executive producer of this program. You can follow him at Father Rosica. Coming up in our second half hour the heart of the diaconate, and we meet singer-songwriter Lorraine Hess, so don't go anywhere.
Hello and welcome to the Salt and Light Hour Part 2. I'm Deacon Pedro. I'm embarrassed to say that even among deacons, the diaconate remains a bit of a mystery. We are clergy, but we're not priests. Most of us are also called to the vocation of marriage, but also to the ordained life. People also seem to be confused. Are, are we glorified altar servers? Are we mini priests? Are we priest or bishop helpers? There's confusion. So it was good for me to read Deacon James Keating's newest book, The Heart of the Diaconate. And it's really good that he joins us now on the line from Omaha, Nebraska. Deacon James, welcome back to the Salt and Light Hour. Thank you, Deacon. So why do you think there's so why do you think there's so much confusion about the diaconate? Well well, part of it is a positive answer in that we really are participating in a mystery. Okay. Uh, we are we are participating in the actions of Christ that he has uh, left to the church in his spirit by way of holy order. So the the very fact that we are somehow offering our bodies to Christ so that he can continue his ministry in them, that's a that's a pretty big mystery. So you know, we shouldn't really beat ourselves up too much that we don't have a, <laughs> a clear and mathematical grasp on what he's called us into. The other reason it might be some... Um, confusion, even in priests and deacons' own uh, minds about the diaconate, is that it has been reduced, or was reduced, I think we're coming out of that Mm -hmm. time, but it was reduced to a practical uh, office of action. And so, more so than marriage, more so than the priesthood, uh, when the permanent diaconate was reestablished, it kept getting defined by what deacons do. And this has always been sort of an albatross around the neck of a deacon, because in doing that, what, what the Church does, or what people who want to impose that identity on the deacon do, is they make the man just kind of scramble around and continue in the frenetic Western pace of masculinity, which is to simply achieve. Mm-hmm. And it also what it does is it really crams up the imagination of a man, because as you're wondering, why am I attracted to Christ in this way of service and being sent from the bishop to those in need, well, then I get a list from the chancery that tells me these are the things I do. Yeah. And it really it just shuts down the imagination when the deacon is really ordained to be sent from the bishop in his permanent availability to the servant mysteries of Christ, which are undefined. They are discerned by every age, and they are discerned by every diocese, okay, let as me st- to what, what the, the actions of the deacon should be. Yeah, let me stop you right there, because I mean, you've said a lot. Uh, but So, okay, so, and, and I'm glad you said what you said, because I was going to say, so what are the servant mysteries of Christ? So you're saying that, that they can, they, they're undetermined. Undetermined. Now, of course, there, there's, there's a direction in the Scripture. So, I mean, the obvious one is the, the foot-washing yes. scene in the, in the Last Supper. But from there, I mean, even the the story of the Good Samaritan is mm-hmm. diaconal, yeah. as a, as we pour, you know, the gospel into the wounds of people. But w- what does the pouring look like, and what are the wounds that we're pouring it into? This is wide open in terms of the discernment that a bishop has for the real needs of his uh, deacons. So it, it, it is part of the problem that our diocese are so big. I mean, I'm in a huge archdiocese. We got three auxiliary bishops. And because I can I can imagine how originally a bishop or, or the apostles, you know, could have been it would have been very specific. Look, this is what we're doing and the deacons are out there and the deacons like I can't go and feed the orphans and the widows. Can can you do that for me? Mm-hmm. Um 
Right. I mean, a lot of it is it is the extension of the archbishop or the bishop's ministry. Uh, the the deacon is given the book of the Gospels from the bishop at ordination, yeah. and basically he's saying to the man, uh, where my ministry has yet to reach, you go reach it for me. Right. So so we should be working closer with the bishop is. And his imagination. And his and imagination. his pastoral vision, his pastoral imagination. Right. So, for example, I, I right. knew one bishop, uh, uh, or one, uh, yeah, one bishop and one deacon who collaborated, and uh, the deacon saw a need. He was on the internet. There were a lot of chat rooms about Catholicism. There were a lot of errors and uh, misunderstandings about Catholicism. He talked with his bishop. His ministry today is he surfs the internet looking for chat rooms about Catholicism, he enters into conversation and helps to bring the truth to them. And that's his ministry as a deacon. Interesting. And who would think of that on your ordination no, day? Yeah, no, of course, of course. Um, now, but okay, so when you present it that way, that's not confusing at all. It actually it's, makes perfect sense and it's very practical. But you also talk about attention, uh, that there's a tension, or a, uh, you, uh, you use the word tension, I'd like to use the word balance. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's exactly the same thing, but why why is there a tension and why should there be a tension? Now, uh, when you say balance, uh, maybe I want to say creative tension, which may okay. be the, yeah. uh, the positive thing that you're trying to draw out. And are you talking about the tension between like a cleric living a lay life? Yes. Okay. Well, in that one, I think this is the great gift of the diaconate for the modern age, actually, because... Um, you know, it, as as people were sort of, you know, floating around and trying to figure out what a deacon is in the early part of the last 50 years, some men uh, kind of aligned themselves more closely with priest, and therefore they took on clerical um, trappings. And then other men kind of rebelled against it and got deeper and deeper into the lay world. Yeah. In other words, what they did is they relaxed the tension. And I think the only way to be a deacon is to keep the tension uh, alive, and I call it the creative tension, between a cleric living a lay life. And what that means is is that we cling very tightly to the altar as the source of our interiority and the source of our, our ministry, our communion with the Trinity, yeah. sends us then, sends us into the secular world as an emissary of the mystery of Christ and the bishop's ministry. And we get embedded in the secular world. That's why it's so powerful that... Uh, deacons are still plumbers or they're lawyers, because uh, the move to try and make deacons like full-time employees of the church, I think, would evacuate the diaconal charism immediately. Uh The power of the diaconate is that the sacred comes from the altar in symbolic form, buries itself in the secular, and aligns itself as uh, as a helpful grace, so that the laity can have resources right there, in the next cubicle, yeah. there's a man struggling with his marriage, and right next door in the next cubicle in the accounting office is a deacon yeah. who can very prudently, subtly give him counsel, pray for him, pray with him. So the deacon, the sacred, uh, the min- the ministry of Jesus' own service from the altar, then as an emissary, as a spy, if you will, mm-hmm. hidden in the secular world. That's the tension we have to keep. And so... So how is a deacon doing that different than just a, isn't that what every Catholic should be doing? The grace of ordination is um, objectively different and unique from mm-hmm. the grace of baptism. Yeah. Because the grace of ordination configures the man 
to the specific activities of Christ's servant heart. So he is actually, if his prayer life is lively, and if he's drawing from the objective activity, the objective reality of his own ordination, mm-hmm. he is configured to this mystery in a way that lay people aren't. Right. Something real happened to a deacon on his ordination, and what's real is he became permanently available to these servant mysteries of Christ. And that's his unique grace that he brings. Can lay people pray with each other? Of course, out of the grace of their baptism. Yes. But we are established in a different font. And so therefore, Christ is configuring us according to his heart as a servant who wants to pour the gospel in the pain of people that are near to us. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, the diaconate uh, would not exist. There has to be this specific configuring of the man to Christ. Absolutely. Otherwise, yeah, exactly. It wouldn't be ordination. Um, so what... Oh, I have so many questions um, <laughs> and not enough time. So this book is, is, is this book just for deacons? Who would this book be for? I, you know, I would love priests to read it. Yes. Maybe even more than deacons. Because yes. one of the things that we have to, and I'm hoping the Holy Spirit is moving powerfully in this way, but we have to reestablish the diaconal identity in the seminaries. Yes. Because what happens to so many seminarians yes. is they, they come up to diaconate it's a section of a sacramental theology course, and then they begin to think of diaconate as, well, this will be good because I'll get to preach, I'll get to wear vestments, and i got to really think hard about celibacy. Yes. And it becomes this pragmatic time in seminary formation where they're actually thinking of, I'll get some practice, and then i really got to you know, believe that I'm called to celibacy. But the whole diaconal mystery, the whole grace of, of Christ sharing his uh, servant mysteries with us, it's, it's not really even broached. And so when a man becomes a deacon, he's already looking forward to being a priest. Yes. And so the diaconal imagination in the seminary is very anemic, and I would love for priests and seminary formators to read this book as well. I think there should be a new revolution of uh, the dignity of the diaconate uh, in the seminary itself. Yeah, okay, good. There's good advice. I'm sure there's some priest listening and, and somebody in the seminary listening. So um, th- this is very good. Um, we're going to have to leave it there. But I, I, I mean, of course, I'm a deacon. So I, I, I read this and, and it's so interesting. And I'm going to pass it on to anybody that's doing diaconate formation that I know. But uh, um, and, and pastors, uh, maybe one last thing, Deacon James, what I think you've alluded to this already, but what what do you think, or where do you think the diaconate is going, or what do you think is the future of the diaconate? I think the de- the, the diaconate, if it's going to be lively in the future, has to be younger, uh-huh. has to be more imaginative regarding uh, ministry, yes, and has to be more mystical. Oh, younger, love it. imaginative, and mystical. Good. That's good. Three words, just like Pope Francis. Okay. Right. <laughs> good. I'm youthful. I don't know if I'm mystical, but I'd like to think I'm imaginative. <laughs> so, don't be afraid of the mystical. <laughs> yes. It's just it's just deepening intimacy with the Trinity. That's yes, all. I love it. I love it. This is so good. Thank you so much for doing what you do, for writing the book, and for sharing uh, a little bit about it with us today. Thank you having, for having me on, Pedro. I appreciate it. Deacon James Keating is the Director of Theological Formation at the Institute for Priestly Formation at Creighton University. His latest book, The Heart of the Diaconate, Communion with the Servant Mysteries of Christ is published by Paulist Press. You can learn more about Deacon James Keating's work at priestlyformation.org. Here now is our featured artist of the week, Lorraine Hess, with To You, O Lord, from her new album, As I Pray. 
That was Lorraine Hess with To You, O Lord, from her new album, As I Pray. Lorraine Hess has been doing music ministry since she was 16 years old. Her first album, We Shall Be Healed, is a collection of songs written and inspired by her faith journey as a Catholic wife and mother, and her experiences surviving Hurricane Katrina in 2005 and its aftermath. Her second album, Child of God, is a perfect, perfect combination of her contemporary style with the rich traditions of the Catholic faith. Her third album, Cradle in Bethlehem, is a pro-life Advent Christmas project in support of a local pregnancy and referral center in New Orleans. Now Lorraine has a new album, As I Pray, that we've been listening to. It's published by World Library Publications, and to tell us all about it, I am now joined by Lorraine Hess. Lorraine, welcome to the Salt and Light Hour. Thank you so much. So, I know now you live in New Orleans, but I'm not sure where you grew up. Tell us a little bit about what it was like to grow up. I was born and raised in New Orleans. Oh, you so were? So I've been here all my life. Wow. I love the city, yes. This yes. This is where I um, 
my husband is from the city as well, so we have lots of family here. Uh-huh. And, and did you grow up in a Catholic household? I did, and I went to Catholic school all my life, um, which really laid the foundation for my writing um, you know, later on. You learn your prayers. I always say, like, in, in the early years, you learn your prayers, and, and, you, and you kind of learn the rituals of your faith. And then I went to St. Mary's Dominican High School here in New Orleans, which has been around since the 1800s, yeah. and um, that's where I learned to pray. And it was a, a wonderful experience that introduced to contemporary music, and the school masses were just fabulous. Yeah. And I think that's really where the seeds of faith were planted, and um, the writing grew from there. Right. Now, is, do you come from a big family? My mother is one of nine. Wow. And, yes, and so I think she has over 80 cousins just on her mother's side <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> that we can count. That's amazing. We used to do family reunions by color. Everyone yes. wore a certain color. <laughs> um, and then my dad comes from a big Italian family. So, yes, we have lots of family here in New Orleans. Right. And, and uh, was it a musical household? Yes, it is a very musical household on my mother's side. Um, my aunt did a lot of music and jazz in the 70s and um, my, every one of her siblings is in music in some kind of way. Yeah. So there's a lot of them do local music. Some of them write commercials. Some of them are, are playing things like hammered dulcimer, guitar, right. violin, oh, wow. uh, lots of music. And is it, I mean, I think of New Orleans, I think Cajun music, I think, um, mm-hmm. I also do think there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of Catholic roots in New Orleans, which is not the same in, in, across the southern United States, but in New Orleans because of the French background. Um, right. So, so that must have also, right. also all been an influence to you. It, yes, it was an influence. In fact, my music is really kind of a combination of some of the Cajun heritage, also a lot of jazz. There's a lot of soulful yeah. music in New Orleans, a lot of gospel here in the New Orleans area. Um, and New Orleans is almost like its own little country. I mean, it's so eclectic yes. that you can, um, before you know, you're adding reggae and you don't even realize it because right. it's just the, the city is so diverse. Right, yeah, it's a great little city. I, 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 that mm-hmm. I've been there once, and I enjoyed it greatly. Um, do you have any brothers or sisters? I have one sister who lives in Houston, and I miss her tremendously. Oh. She's also a songwriter and a musician. Oh, good. I hope she's listening. Um, I, I hope so too. So w- you mentioned that. So you, your your mother's side of the family is musical. You, you, growing up with you and your sister, did you have to do like piano lessons or? vocal or anything like that at home? You know, I did piano lessons, and I did it. I had a teacher who was very strict, and I was extremely shy. So that lasted for about three years until I couldn't take it anymore. So I I stopped playing (laughs) piano for a while. Yeah. Um, But I stayed in music, and my mom was a cantor at our church, so I was kind of exposed to um, liturgical music through her. Right. And then um, in high school, I mean, I was a gymnast for many years, and I got hurt. And when I got hurt, I was kind of looking for something else. So I began to take voice lessons in high school, and I just found this whole new world. It was one of those things where you thank God for the cross. I mean, you take away something that you love so that the door can open to some other opportunities, and I believe that's what happened. Right. And so that's when I really started getting involved in music ministry. Okay, so that was around when you were about 16. Correct. Did you ever go through 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 that adolescent period that many of us go through of, of doubt or rebellion with the faith? Um, I wouldn't say I ever had rebellion. I think I had maybe some laziness. Yeah. You know, like you get into yeah. college and you think a holy day of obligation is more like a holy day of aggravation, and you just, I don't have yeah. time for that. So there were times <laughs> when I was not practicing 
fully and didn't understand the blessings of keeping that. But I never, I never left the church. Mm-hmm. It was, it was more routine though. And then as you know, my husband and he's a, a strong man of faith. And as our marriage, we grew together in our faith, and mm-hmm. um, that that's where we started to hunger for more. So we started doing more with our church and. Um, I think it's just kind of like the stock market. You know, you move up a little bit, and you regress a little, and you move up a little bit, and yeah. you never want to go back to how you were in the beginning, but it just, um, you know, it grows and grows, and, and you have to keep it going. Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard anyone compare the faith to the <laughs> stock market, but that is that is that is a good analogy. Um, um, I, I, I think a lot of us, we, 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 we hear about New Orleans, we remember Hurricane Katrina, and I know that that mm-hmm. I mean you were there. That's all you've lived there all your life, and and it, it, the experience was was so meaningful that in fact it led to your first album. So tell yes, us a bit about is. that. Well, you know, we're getting ready to celebrate the tenth anniversary mm-hmm. of that horrific event, and what was so beautiful about that time. Of course, I don't ever want to do it again. Don't don't mistake me yeah. for saying that it, it was a it was a blessing that it would want to redo, but. You know, people put their differences aside during that time, and yeah. estranged family members were helping each other, and people, churches were packed, and people were realizing what was important, and kids were playing outside, and they didn't have soccer practice six days a week, and mm-hmm. nobody was working 60 hours a week. They were just helping each other just get back on their feet, and it was the entire city who was grieving, you know, just mm-hmm. the, the entire city, and so it really brought this community back together, and the people in New Orleans are so very proud of how they rebounded from that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so out of that, you know, you, you spend a lot of time in prayer, um, and it's in our deepest hopelessness, I think, that we are we cling closest to God. And so that's really what happened in the sacraments um, and in the Psalms and the, in, in, in um, the Scripture. A lot of writings start to come from that, from yeah. that experience of the, the deep prayer that, that you go through when you're in a time of crisis. Right. Again, uh, being grateful for the cross. Um, had right. you been had you been writing music before that experience? I would write here and there. In fact, I keep this um, I keep this plaque in my office where I do my writing of a, a song I wrote in 1982 when I was in grade school, where I won second place in the nation for this little patriotic song, and it's just a reminder to me. And then I put it down, and I would write harmonies to things in college when I would do shows. Yeah. We needed an alto part, or we needed a tenor part. But I would, I would write. I knew I could write, and my mom used to say, I used to always sing to the radio the harmony part. Right. So I always had the ear for it. Um, but it really wasn't until I was in my thirties that I started sitting down and putting my scripture time and my prayer time at the piano, two words, um, and into music. So it was later after I had, I had four children, and I was having babies, and I was serving the church as I could. And then as they got a little older, it became um, apparent to me that this is the direction God wanted to move me mm-hmm. into. So it was a little later in life, but I'm glad I did because I brought the experiences of of, of motherhood and marriage and um, being involved with my church into the music. Right. So now you have a new album. Uh, what would you say is different yes. about this album for you? This, I, I planned this entire album in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament. Wow. The idea for it came to me in... Um, it's 30 minutes of music. It's just enough time to drive to work or to get on a treadmill or to sit in your prayer time. Every song is written from the perspective of the first person. Mm-hmm. So the listener can sing it directly to God as their prayer time. Um, and it goes through the stages of our prayer, a call to worship, a repentance, um, a, a beg for mercy, uh, a, a 
placing our trust and asking for petition. Yeah. And then we praise. And so you can use that because people in my generation were kind of immediate post Vatican II, and mm-hmm. parents didn't really know how to teach us to pray. Yeah. So we have a hunger for it because we've been exposed to it for 50 years, but sometimes we don't have the words. And so this gives the listener the words to pray through their prayer time. It's got instrumentals for listening, yeah. which, you know, people don't always know how to listen in their prayer time. Um, so I think that's what's different about this one from the others, that you can use it as, use it as your prayer time. Right. I, I hate to call it a, a tool, <laughs> but but I guess that's what it is. Well, it's kind I, of yeah. Sure. Yeah, so that I can, and I, and I, I, I'm, I'm exactly that person that you described. That I spend so much time in my car, and right. and that's when I listen to, to spiritual music that helps me focus, refocus my day, or or you know that's when I have time right. to. So I think that's a great gift, Lorraine. Thank you. Well, thank you. So um, we're going to leave it there, but it's been great meeting you. Okay. I love the album. I, 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 thank you so it much. It does exactly what you set out to do, and I, and I hope that our listeners, with a little bit that they've heard today, um, have the same feeling and that they can uh, go and go and get it. And 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 as good. we listen, and we're accepting prayer requests. We, if you go oh, to my website, good. there's a place to add prayer requests yeah. for the release album concert, which is July 1st. So if they add a prayer intention, we'll include it that night in our as we pray through the album for the first time. Oh, nice. Okay, good idea. So so that'll be in the nor in New Orleans. Yes, it's July 1st in New Orleans, and um, and um, okay. yeah, we're just it's going to be a prayerful night. We're we're um. It's just a beautiful night to pray through all the songs so that people can see how this album is lined up. Okay, good. So so, so send your prayer requests. And if you are in the New Orleans area, go to Lorraine's website, LorraineHess.com, and find out where that's going to be and, uh, and, and go and pray and celebrate. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lorraine. Great meeting you. Same here. You can learn more about Lorraine Hess. Uh, you can buy her music or find out where she'll be performing next at her website, LorraineHess.com. That's Hess with two S's, H-E-S-S, LorraineHess.com. Her new album, As I Pray, is published by World Library Publications. And here now is Lorraine Hess with the title track of her new album, As I Pray. Will you sit with me, Lord Jesus? Just spend some time with me, Lord Jesus. As I tell you all about my day, though you already know, I ask you for my day. Sitting to Lorraine Hess with As I Pray from the album of the same name, 
published by World Library Publications. And that will take us to the end of the program. Next week, we're giving away a copy of Lorraine Hess' As I Pray. So go over to saltandlighttv.org slash radio and look where it says Stay Connected for a Chance to Win Weekly Prizes. Just enter your name and your email address for a chance to win. Also, you can send us comments on our Facebook page or send me a tweet at Deacon Pedro GM or send us a direct voice message from our website and we'll enter you into the draw. That's all for today. Thank you for your financial support and thank you for listening. I'm Deacon Pedro and this has been the Salt and Light Hour. When my joy is beyond me, as the heart that bled to save my soul, joy's